Welcome to For a Living. I'm Daniel Lazar. For a Living explores working lives. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Terkel. And in my hope to close the social distance, I'm seeking to shape a space to hedge against our daily tsunami of celebrity charades and political pablum by giving voice to good, hardworking people who have no agenda here other than to explore what they do for a buck. Hey, thank you so much for tuning in. I got so much going on over here. It's a lively time indeed for me. And you, you my friends, you are in for a mighty lively episode. Now, if you really want to know what's been going on over here, you should check out Friday's issue of my free weekly newsletter, The Saboteur. Yep, The Saboteur. It's a portmanteau. I linked to it in the show notes of this here episode. I also dropped a link to my Patreon page in the show notes. No new patrons to announce this week, but podcast patron Tony Gonzalez, in his grace, in his infinite wisdom, just bumped himself up a tier on the Patreon page. Totally appreciate your support, Tony. And y'all listen, this is a listener-supported podcast. I really can't sustain this project without your support. So shout out, Tony. And if you, my dear listener, if you like to support independent creators, if you have the means to give a few, please support For Living over at patreon.com slash for living. That's patreon.com slash for living. Like I said, the link is in the show notes. Help a brother out. Yeah, so I'm finding a lot of solace a lot of focus in the weekly newsletter. Check it out. You'll see. I'm shaking up my approach to teaching history. Kind of, sort of, kind of feels like I'm shaking it up. But after obsessing over my work last week, this week I'm hoping to put work on the side burner because for the first time since the damn pandemic started, I got Chicago folk coming to visit. And not only, not only do I have hometown heroes visiting, but these two happen to be podcast alums. Todd Greenstein, who runs the Santa Claus racket and the train rides in the shopping malls, and his wife Kim Greenstein, the fitness coach and powerlifter, both of them will descend upon Berlin with their two tweens in tow, and I am stoked to play tour guide and particularly stoked to share my fair city with them as the spring breeze blows. It's spring, my friends. Listen, I got so much going on over here right now. It's bananas. Bananas, I tell you. So much I want to tell you. But... I gotta keep this introduction to the podcast short because this episode of Four Living is a little bit longer than usual. I know, I know the episodes are already lengthy, but the truth is the truth. And the truth is that this here long-awaited episode is, I dare say, among the best conversations I've ever recorded. Totally worth the wait and totally worth your time. Dr. Patrick Baker is a translator, a subtitler, and a language consultant. We discuss how his work is about so much more than translating language. It's about translating tone and culture and vibe. We talk about what it means to him to be, as he described it, 
an intellectual blue-collar worker. And, fascinatingly, we explore how artificial intelligence has impacted and will probably continue to impact his work. Now, my dear listener, at long last, it is my distinct pleasure, indeed, it is my honor, to introduce you to my dear friend, Patrick. I have to say, this is really exciting. Yeah? <laughs> yeah, for <laughs> sure. <laughs> At long last, Dr. Patrick Baker, welcome to For a Living. How do you describe what you do? Hi, Daniel. Thanks for having me. I am a translator, subtitler, and writ large, you could say a language specialist and, dare I say, language consultant. I'm desperately curious to get into all of that. But before we do, how did you get on this path? Well, that's a long story. (laughs) I guess most people would probably say that about uh, how they ended up doing what they do. But my path does seem to have, at least in my own mind, more twists and turns uh, than most others. I never intended to become a translator or even to work in languages, certainly not foreign languages. I was a terrible writer. And I thought that I could not learn foreign languages. I was in high school taking advanced placement chemistry, calculus BC, AP history, all the big boys, and I could not master French. (laughs) And I could do all the grammar tests. I knew all the vocabulary, but I could not speak a word to save my life. I could not understand anything spoken in French. So uh, it was my greatest failure in high school probably was that I actually dropped French because I was so bad at it. In fact, the teacher offered me a way out after my sophomore year. I told her I wasn't going to continue with French because I hated it so much. And she said, oh, but you're so good at it. I said, well, I'm terrible. I can't say anything. I don't understand anything. Oh, but you know all the grammar. You should stay. You'll get better. I'll make a deal with you. You don't have to speak. And you can come to class and take all the tests and do all the homework. The highest grade you can get is a B plus, but you don't have to speak if that's what makes you uncomfortable. So I did that for a year, got my B plus, And then I never took French again because it was just so (laughs) terrible and so disheartening. Uh, And then I took Latin because you didn't have to speak it. It's the only reason. (laughs) So uh, I took a year of Latin in high school. When I went to college and I had to do a language requirement, I said, well, I'll just take more Latin because, you know, I clearly suck at languages. It's the one thing I just can't do it. My brain is not made for languages. Fast forward to today. I'm a fluent speaker of German and Italian. Uh, I've translated from Latin, from Renaissance uh, primary sources from Latin. I can actually read French now still. And I also learned ancient Greek. And so a a development that I did not expect to happen. (laughs) And it all took place totally by accident. Uh, When I was in college, I was feeling a little depressed and was thinking of dropping out and a very good friend of mine who was a teacher at that point, one of my graduate student instructors who was half Greek said, no, you're not, you're not depressed and you don't want to drop out of college. 
you're just bored and you're just not really fit for this environment here in an American college system, go to Europe. I would tell you to go to Greece, but you'd say I'm biased. <laughs> so go somewhere else. Don't go to France. France is terrible. Ugly language, ugly people, terrible food. <laughs> you, can tell, you can tell how this guy ticked. Yeah. Said, go, go to Italy. Italy's a great place. Okay. Great food, beautiful language, beautiful countryside, wonderful history, great literature. Just go. I thought, hmm, that sounds like a, an interesting idea. And it just so happened that a friend of mine wanted to go study Italian. For the summer, he was an Italian major and wanted to really get his Italian in shape. He was going to go to the University for Foreigners in Perugia, which became famous later because it's where Amanda Knox may or may not have killed her roommate. And that became Perugia's claim to fame. It's also gorgeous. I've been there. Oh, you've been? It's stunning. Okay. Excellent. Um, Yeah, I loved it. So long story short, I went to Perugia for the summer of my junior year, between junior and senior year. And much to my surprise, fell in love with Italian. And because of the pedagogy at the University for Foreigners there, which is all immersion-based, I realized that I not only could learn a foreign language, but I actually had a real facility for it. And I really enjoyed it. And I loved what happened in my brain and in my soul when I could transform words and thoughts from one language into another. And I went back to University of Michigan, completed my degree, promising myself that in return, I would then go learn ancient Greek, which had been a long dream of mine, as it is for many young children. (laughs) (laughs) There was a summer program at the City University of New York Uh that I went to after graduating. I think I was the only person there taking the class for no credit. Uh (laughs) And after that, I went back to Italy with no plan in mind but to really learn Italian. I had no timeline, I had very little money, and I just got a plane ticket and went. Okay. Fast forward, I met a beautiful, stunning German woman. Yeah. Who changed the course of my life. As happens in Italy. As happens in Italy. (laughs) (laughs) And that brought me to Germany. So when she decided that she was going to leave Italy, She was very sad and she said, well, I'll probably never see you again. I said, why? I'll come to Germany. Yeah. She didn't really believe me. And then I did. I showed up and uh, I learned German, which had kind of been on the list in the back of my mind. And now she's my wife. Yeah. Yeah. Foreign languages really do bring people together. (laughs) And we still sort of like each other, and we have two great kids. You sure do. Yeah. So win-win. Uh, win-win. Real quick timeline for me here. You went to Italy in 1990... I guess it was the summer of 98. was summer the first time. And then the long stay, the second time I went, was 1999, the fall of 99. And you met... Can we call her by name? We can. The fabulous artist... Katrin Grota Baker. We should link to Katrin's work. And oh, the definitely. Show notes to the podcast. You met Katrin the second trip. Yes. 99. Uh, we met uh, right after Christmas vacation. So right in the beginning of January 2000. So she saw me on a train, getting off a train in Rome. For her, it was love at first sight, <laughs> clearly. 
I needed a little more time. That's the story I like to tell. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and she saw me again then in, in the main university building. And uh, a friend introduced us. And it wasn't exactly history from right then, but pretty shortly thereafter. Well, we have to give her some credit. She has impeccable taste in men. She does. And she was really good at Italian. And so we actually spoke Italian together. She didn't think it would be fair to speak English. Yeah and thus be at a disadvantage. And I didn't want to speak anything but Italian because I knew that I really wanted to learn Italian well. And the only way I would do that was by speaking. And so we spoke Italian for the first two years we were together. And only six months of that was in Italy. So you immersed yourself in the language. The two of you immersed yourselves in one another. And <laughs> the rest, as we say, is history. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So you begin the 21st century in Berlin. You're here, what, like 2000, 2001, 2002, something like that? Exactly. All right. Let's pick up from there. All right. So uh, I taught English at Berlitz. Uh, did in, you really? Yes, I did uh, for, <laughs> God, a year and a half, something like that. Oh, yeah. And it was one of the only jobs I could get back then yeah. because the rule then, I don't know what it is now, was as an American you could only get work permission doing a job that no one from the European Union could do. <laughs> and that was a tall order yeah. for someone with my skill set. So the one skill I had that no one from the European Union had was an American accent in my native language. Right. And that's what Berlitz offered was accent-specific language training. So I didn't teach English, I taught American English, and that's how I got my job there. So that's how I paid the rent. And in a sense, it was my first job as an adult, you know, my first full-time job. I got bored with that quickly. As one does. As, <laughs> as one does, teaching people who don't really want to be there, who aren't learning a language in the way that they need to, to really make progress. Yeah. And it really wasn't what I wanted to be doing. And to be honest, I think I wasn't open enough to see what Berlin had to offer back then. And I was getting bored in Berlin. I didn't really have many friends. And I thought, I need to go do something else. So I started looking into graduate school opportunities and decided, I don't really know what I want to do, but I know that if you go to graduate school at a really good place, they give you money yeah. and that you don't have to have another job. What do I like to do? I love Italy. I like Germany. I love these languages. I love, by that point, I'd really come to have a deep love for Latin and Greek and the classics. So how can I combine classical literature, modern Italian philosophy, all those things? I'll go get a degree in Renaissance history because that's a place where all of those things intersect. I didn't know the first thing about the Renaissance, <laughs> <laughs> but it just seemed like a really good way to keep the, keep the train moving. Yeah. And I knew they would give me funding to go live in Italy and do research on what I had no idea, because again, I didn't know anything about the Renaissance. So I applied to graduate schools, only top graduate schools, because there was no sense in going to a place that would not fund me. Right. And as luck had it, I got into Harvard and went there to do my graduate work in history. And over time, developed a real vocation for university level learning and research and teaching. And that was the career that I thought I was going to have and the career that I actually did have until about 2017. 
So I was an academic. I started my PhD program, well, my master's in 2002, PhD program in 2004. I graduated uh, in 2009, got my first job here in Germany, actually a couple of months before the PhD came through and worked at German universities from 2009 to 2017. Now, I don't think our listeners would mind if I told them that you and I are dear friends here in Berlin. And I hope that you don't mind that I share with them my recollection of the origin story of our friendship. <laughs> sure. It, it was at Shoot. a craft beer bar. I walked in with my wife and kid, as any responsible father would do, bringing this kid to the bar. You were at the bar. You were alone, bellied up to the bar, reading a book. You heard our American accents, which we did not get from Berlitz. We were, we're natives. <laughs> we got to talking real quickly. You asked me what I did for a living, and um, I, I probably gave some sideways answer, as I'm inclined to do. And perhaps in response to that, I'm like, well, what's your racket? And you said, do you remember what you said? I think I probably said I'm a failed academic. You said I'm a failed academic. And you said, <laughs> it's my favorite kind. <laughs> And it was love at first sight. <laughs> it was. It was. Let the record state here on the For Living podcast that I'm absolutely crazy for Patrick Baker. And I'm not the only one. You are in demand. The world is becoming smaller. Translations are in demand. And I guess I kind of wonder how you promote yourself. Like, how do you land translation work? I'm really not very good at that part of my job. <laughs> Let's start there. Let's Great. start with this stuff that you're not so comfortable with. Yeah, I'm not comfortable with it. I don't have many skills. And the skills I have, <laughs> I don't seem to deploy very well. Most of my work comes to me uh, through word of mouth. So satisfied customers talk to other people who need translation. They say, oh, I worked with this guy. He was great. Or from other translators, they get asked to do a job, can't do it. And then as a professional courtesy or as a way to help their network, they reach out to me, say, can I recommend you for this job? Are you interested? Would you have time? And then they put me in touch. So th those are the two standard ways that I get jobs. I also work with several agencies. That's a standard part of the industry. Very few translators actually work if they're full-time translators. That's how they make all of their money and they have to make adult money, not a side gig or something like yeah, yeah. that. They almost all work with agencies in addition to their private work. And so I get a lot of work that way. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's a it's its own world. And I should say I have a website, which is really cool. The website has not helped me get many jobs, in part because I haven't put much work into turning it into a marketing tool, but it's a great way to look more professional. It's a very nice website and it helps me with my pricing, which is another issue we, we can talk about. I will confess that in advance of this conversation, I pulled up your website. I love the photo of you on your website. One of my better days. <laughs> um, okay. So whether through an agency or on your own accord, you, you land a gig. I'm kind of curious about what translation opportunities you're, you're quick to reject. Be like, that's not for me. And then by contrast, what translation opportunities you're pretty eager to accept. 
I reject anything that I don't think is worth my time. Well, how do you make that calculation? Uh, I know that I need to make a certain amount of money per, let's say per month. And then you can break that down. How much do I need to make a week? How much do I need to make a day? And then how much do I need to make an hour? Obviously, one day you might make twice as much as you technically need to make by that calculation. Then the next day you can make less. But there's a basement that I can't go below unless it's in the interest of landing more work in the future, creating a relationship or rewarding a relationship. Say I have a customer who I get a lot of work from and it's really good work. I like doing it. And then they ask me to do something that's really not worth my time. And I don't mean, you know, the project is garbage. They just can't pay me what I need to make or they're not willing to pay me what I need to make from, for my time. Then I'll say, well, I'll take it on in the interest of the relationship. Okay. I get it. Like the Benjamins are going to drive a decision. Yeah. There's an economic force that will attract you to or repel you from a gig, but are there types of translation gigs that you think are worth your time because they are somehow interesting to you or somehow more valuable to you? Do you get to make choices that aren't entirely fiscally based? Uh, definitely. And that's, that's actually relatively new for a long time. I basically took anything that came my way because I felt like I had to, uh, I've been in the business now long enough that I can pick and choose. And that's very nice. I can pick and choose between customers, between projects. I should say one kind of project I just won't do is subtitling reality television. <laughs> uh, I hate reality television. It's also, I think a very hard hard task, uh -huh. especially if you're not in that world, which I'm not, I don't really know the language of that world. I don't know how people speak in that world in English because I don't watch those programs. So I don't feel qualified to do it. I'm also not interested in doing it. Okay. And so I will always reject like any reality television. Give me another example of something that you will prima facie reject. I will almost always reject a request to edit or improve a translation done by artificial intelligence because that is a very boring job and does not let me work at the level that I like to work at. Doesn't let me be creative. It doesn't let me really think I'm just correcting the work that not even a thinking human mind did, but an algorithm that is programmed to string words together in the way that people usually string words together without really any understanding of meaning or intention, context, expectation. And those are the real keys to translation. I, I don't dispute that AI can do a great job on certain kinds of translation. It's still basically at the ordering food at McDonald's level, but it's going to take over the industry. There's no doubt. It will be interesting to see what's left over in 15, 20, even 50 years, it might just become a totally boutique business. But that's another kind of job that I just don't, don't like doing. So maybe give me the other side of that. What are the jobs that you're really eager to pursue? I am eager now to pursue really large, big splash, popular, what you might call popular science or popular learning projects. So I'm finishing up a major translation now of, a, of an historical monograph on the Renaissance. It's a fabulously interesting book. It takes a counterfactual and deep history approach to 
a topic that's been done a hundred million times in a hundred different ways, and it actually manages to say something new and interesting. It's 1,200 pages, <laughs> and it is beautifully written. And it's such a great opportunity to engage at the highest level of the craft on that kind of project. It's also, since it's so long, it's a lot of work. So yeah. it relieves me of the responsibility of finding other jobs in the meantime or of having to find so many other jobs. It can also be difficult because then you need to juggle you don't want to lose all of your regular customers because for six months you're just working on a 1200 page brick. <laughs> so you need to keep working for other people too, to let them know that you're still there. Uh, so that can be difficult, but that's, that's just such a rewarding kind of project. And I, I love it so much. And it's coming out with a major press. It's Princeton university press. It's going to be priced somewhere that normal people can buy it. It's the kind of book that, I can imagine my dad reading. In fact, I can't wait to give it to him for Christmas when it comes out. And, you know, he likes reading history. He's not an historian. Uh, he's, you know, a well-educated person, but does not work in academia or anything like that. And this is the kind of book that he would like to read. And so that's the kind of project I'm really interested in taking on now. Does the book have a title? It doesn't have a title in English yet. The German title is Der Morgen der Welt, The Morning of the World. The author is Bernd Röck, who is, uh, up until recently, was a professor of history in Zurich. Um, he's German. He's now retired. You could say this is his magnum opus, the book he's been writing for 20 years. It came out in German, I guess, four or five years ago now. Okay. And is in its umpteenth edition here. It's crazy. I've never seen an academic book or a popular academic book sell so many copies. So I, I'm very hopeful for what's going to happen to the English translation. This is really exciting. I yeah. asked in part because I was hoping to maybe link to the book in Definitely. the show notes. That's really exciting. I'm excited for you. This is a substantial and meaningful project. And exactly. I'm happy that it's in your world. Yeah, it's in my world and it's leading to more my next big project is already in the wings and it's a i think is a fascinating book it's a dual biography of george washington and the prussian king frederick the great i think the title in german or the subtitle is two paths of enlightenment so it focuses on these two rulers statesmen at the same time but took very different paths very different understandings of what it meant to be a ruler. Washington dedicated to democracy, transfer of power, freedom, obviously with all the caveats that we have come to understand about his role. Right. But compared to someone like Frederick the Great, he is the embodiment of absolutism, enlightened absolutism, but absolutism nonetheless. Washington's great critique of Frederick was that he held his entire country in bondage. Hmm. Whereas Washington governed a country of free people. Obviously, only some of them were free, as we know. But right. uh, in terms of absolutism versus democracy, it's a f fabulous comparison. They're both actually great thinkers, great writers. And so it's a really, really interesting book. So that, that's the next project by Jürgen Overhoff. It'll be interesting to see how they treat their childhoods. You know, Frederick's father 
is the stuff of legend, notorious in some ways. Um, I don't know much about George Washington's father, but perhaps I can read the book. You know, George Washington's mother is the dominating figure. I actually just read uh, Ron Chernow's biography of Washington, or I listened to it on Audible while riding the bike. Chernow's great. Yeah, he's fantastic. And there you really see that Washington's father died or was out of the picture quite early. And his mother was the dominant figure. And she was a beast, (laughs) just a beast who never seems to have thought that her son did anything worthy of note, except mistreat his mother. (laughs) And she would tell anyone and everyone about it. You can see why he yearned for the love of his countrymen so much because he wasn't getting any in his childhood. How about that? Yeah. So before we digress too far into the biography of George Washington, I want to kind of begin to paint a picture of your work life and your workspace. So you've taken on a project, maybe you got it through an agency, maybe you got it through a referral, maybe it's something that you love to do and you're excited about, and maybe it's something that maybe you're not so enthusiastic about. But you you took on the project and it's time to get to work. What are the first things you do when you arrive at your workspace? First thing I do is get some water, get some coffee. And then I open up my work journal and I sketch out the things that I need to do that day. And it's always too many things. So then (laughs) I have to prioritize the list and say, realistically, these are the things that you're going to do today. And then I take a minute to visualize getting them done, how I will have to split up the day when I'll have lunch, uh, when I'll go to the gym, uh, when I'm going to meet with a client, um, all those kinds of things. And then when I'm going to be actually at the desk doing the work, then I open up the computer, check my email and see if there's customer uh, communication that needs to be taken care of. Uh, When that's all done, then I check the news to see if (laughs) it's a day when I should be doing something other than working uh, that almost never happens, uh, which is good. And then I get to work. What time do you show up at the workspace? I tend to get there very early. I have two children and I've realized a long time ago that the only way to really get a lot done is to be out of the house before they wake up. Uh, That's kind of sad because I really love spending time with them in general and especially in the morning, having breakfast, that kind of thing. But I'm at the point now where I need to focus more on on my professional concerns. So I basically get up around five, try to get out of the house by 530, go to the gym. And then by 715, I've closed the New York Times and am opening the project that the first project that I'm going to work on. You operate in a shared workspace of sorts. Yes. What are your thoughts and feelings about that space? What's it like? How do you feel about it? It's a real love-hate relationship. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why there's no Netflix series about this yet. Maybe (sighs) there is, and I don't know about it. We have to... This is our next, our next project. We could, we could do that. Um, you know, it has many advantages. It's great to have a clean, beautiful, well-lit workspace with many amenities. There's a kitchen with a rather good coffee machine 
that for some reason they insist on putting really bad coffee into or not <laughs> calibrating the machine correctly. Um, that's part of the hate side. Okay. But my, my basic needs are met. If I need coffee, it's there. If I need water, it's there. There are refrigerators. It's an, and it's a nice kitchen. More important than that, there's a nice community. The space is divided between offices and open desks. And the open desks are divided between dedicated desks and flex desks. Flex desks are cheaper and you don't get to leave anything there. You have to find a new desk every day. I have a fixed desk or a dedicated desk. And that means that I also have a community of other people who have dedicated desks. And they're all really dedicated freelancers or entrepreneurs, really interesting people working really hard to get things done. And it's a great community to bounce ideas off of, have coffee with, that kind of stuff. So that, those are the advantages. The disadvantages are obvious. Well, it makes me happy to hear that there's something of a community there. It's kind of not how I envisioned it, but it's heartening to learn that that's indeed the case. It's important, right? Very important. I should, I should say it's one of the things that I realized after moving to the co-working space, how much I missed having a community when I was an academic. It's people working in libraries or in offices with the door closed or at home and they never even come to their office. And there are a lot of opportunities to come together with other academics, but there isn't that kind of camaraderie. Academics are incredibly productive people. They work very hard, but they have a very different rhythm. Deadlines don't really matter. There's no urgency to most of what they're doing. And what I've really come to love about the community I'm in now is that everyone there is curious, hardworking, and they have a real sense of urgency. They really want to get things done. It's a great environment to be in. That's awesome, man. You know, you said the word rhythm, and I'm kind of curious about this because I imagine this world where like, you know, you, you're done at the gym, you're done with the New York Times, you got your coffee, and it's, it's time to get to work, if, if you will. How would you describe the, the rhythm of the day in your work as a translator? Rhythm is a really good word for it. It's kind of like a tidal rhythm, like waves going in and coming out. There are periods of intense concentration, focus, where you lose track of time. It can be in half hour, an hour, because you're wrestling with problems or you're in the flow. And then you come out of it and the wave recedes and you need to get up and walk around and have a glass of water and look out the window. So there's that kind of rhythm. But then there's a kind of rhythm to the work itself. So my two basic lines of work are translation and subtitling. I have a standard practice for both of them. With translation, say it's a long text, like the brick I'm finishing up now, <laughs> one approach could be to just translate as much as you can each day and then go to bed and wake up the next day and translate. But in my view, that's a really bad way to go about it. And I try to have a multi-layer editing approach so that I'm constantly revising, revisiting, and staying in the flow of the argument. Because translation works at many levels. You have the level of the word, the level of the sentence, the paragraph, the chapter, and the book. And if you're not keeping all of those in mind all the time, you can't do the best job possible on the highest level work. If the work is easier or you don't care about doing the best job possible, doesn't matter as much. In this case, 
I really do care. And it really is such a great job. So what I would do is say, translate a certain target amount for the day. Say it's four pages of the original text. That's actually the last thing I do. The first thing I do is go back and review what I did the previous days. If you look at the project I'm working on now, from top to bottom, you would see a sentence highlighted in green, and then maybe four pages of text, and then a sentence highlighted in blue, four pages of text, then a sentence highlighted in purple, four pages of text, and then the empty page. And so green is what I did three days ago, blue is what I did two days ago, purple is what I did yesterday. So the first thing I do is read green as if I were reading a book. Does it flow? Because at that point, I've already read it many times and checked it. Does it flow? Okay. Then I read blue knowing this is the first time I'm reading this in the flow state. So I'm not looking as much at the level of page and paragraph, more the level of sentence. Do the sentences work? Does one sentence really flow into the next? Then I get to purple and there I'm checking word for word, line by line. Did I get this right? Correct your mistakes. Or can I say this better? And then when I'm done with that, then I get to the new work for the day. By this point, half the day is over. And I, in a sense, I haven't done anything yet. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't created any new material. Yeah. Um, but the review process is so rich because you get in the flow, you internalize the language you're using, you know the arguments, you really know what the author wants to say. The pump is so primed, then you just hit the button and go. And on the best day, it's a seamless transition from purple to new. <laughs> from purple to new. I think we just came up with the title of this podcast. <laughs> we could probably do better. Yeah. So if I heard you right, you're saying that on a good day, or perhaps on an ordinary day, four pages of dense text is about what you can translate well for the first run. Yes, that's an ideal. This is four book pages, very different from, say, four pages in Microsoft Word, depends on font, you know, all those kinds of things. But for this particular project, four pages is what I try not to do more than and what I hope to achieve each day. On a bad day, I've gotten behind, I've got to do six, maybe eight. That's a stretch, quality suffers, and you feel it the next day when you're going through your revision process. I feel like a bit of a buffoon saying this. And so perhaps you can disabuse me of it or, or lean into it. It seems like a real slow process. Slow and steady wins the race. Slow and steady wins the race. Do you enjoy slowing it down, reading it carefully, being slow and steady? I do. It's a danger. It's one of my greatest weaknesses, I think, as a translator, that I tend to be too slow, you know, in light of the economic side of what I do. On the other hand, if I'm working too fast, it's just not bearable over the long term. You can do two or three days where you're just working yourself to death, going too fast, cutting corners, hoping that, you know, you don't get in some major accident. But if you do it too long, you'll just get burnt out and do garbage work and you'll hate it. So I need to go slow 
I also really savor that work. Again, it depends on the project. If it's just work I need to get done, pays well, it's someone's marketing material or say the script for a really like B, let's say B quality series that someone wants to get made on Netflix or the treatment for a movie that will never get made because it's the idea is so dumb <laughs> and the author of the treatment clearly has no idea that there's another human being reading it. Yeah. You know, like those are bad, bad projects. You try to zoom through them and you don't really get invested. But if it's something you really want to do, then you enjoy taking the time. Is it hard for you to work quickly? Is that kind of the grind of it? The grind is when I make a mistake in accepting a project. That's the real grind. And the mistakes are basically, I accept a project that is actually out of my depth. It's on a topic that I don't know enough about, so I have to do a lot of research to reassure myself that I'm getting it right and doing it well. Or sometimes it's because the author has not written well. So the source text you have is... You know, sometimes you get a source text and you think they vomited this on a page and didn't even read it again before giving it to me, which I know has happened in the past sometimes. And the worst case is when that happens on a subject that you don't know enough about, and then you're just lost. It's, you're in the middle of the ocean. That's the grind because you're translating something that was never edited. It's not very good. You can't just translate it as bad in English as it's written in German or <laughs> Italian. That's not the job. Right. The job is to create the best text you can. I mean, unless it's intentionally some sort of modernist prose, right? <laughs> yeah. I, and I didn't mean that as a joke, actually. I mean, yeah, there yeah. are, I've had that in subtitling projects more than in uh, translation where they have a very non-traditional approach to language and they want that reflected in the translation that's very hard, can be very fun, but that's not the problem we're talking about here. So that's the real grind. When, when I feel in over my head, then I just, oh, it's just painful. Yeah. Okay. So going fast to work on a project that you pretty much understand, but it's just not like a passion project for you. That's not the real grind. It no. can be frustrating. It could elevate your heart rate a little bit. It can be stressful, maybe unenjoyable. The, the real tragedy is when someone gives you lemons and you're struggling with how to make lemonade. Or I don't even know what the fruit is. because it, <laughs> and, and again, I really need to say, sometimes it's on me, Yeah. right? I've taken on a project. I didn't look at it well enough or I didn't look at it at all because I assumed something about it that turned out to not be true. Okay. Those things happen. But I should say the projects that are not passion projects, there's still a great joy in working on them if I'm in the right frame of mind, because it's the rush of manipulating language. And it's the same rush I felt when I was starting to learn Italian and I thought, wow, I can do this. And these words are just coming out of my mouth and I'm not thinking about them. What I'm thinking about now is how to say it well, how to say it best, not how to say it. And that's the great joy of translation. That's awesome. You're bringing me joy just hearing you talk about it which makes me feel a little guilty for wanting to dial back the conversation a little bit because you had mentioned that you tend to start the day. And I would imagine that throughout the day, you, you have to 
check in with clients, whether through email or phone calls or face-to-face meetings, I imagine sometimes. You know, you got to get feedback. You have to give some feedback. You have to explain how things are going. And I'm hoping I could get you to talk a little bit about what I'm going to loosely call the client management side of your work. Maybe we should just start here. How might you describe your relationships with your clients? There are two different kinds of clients fundamentally. One is a direct client and one is an agency. So one is a business to customer relationship and the other is a business to business relationship. And on the back end of that business to business relationship is a client who needs a translation, but my customer is the agency. And so that's a very different relationship from the direct relationship to an end client. Can we talk about both beginning with the business to business relationship, you talking to the agency? Sure. So there, the way it usually works is I get an email from one of the agencies that I work with and they say, we have this project coming in. Are you interested? Can you do it in this time frame, in X time frame, or what would be your best delivery date? And then they'll either have a standard price. Some agencies have a standard price and you just, that's part of agreeing to work with them. Price per word? For translation, it will be price per line. That's the way German is done because German words are so long or can be so long. Price per word does not make sense. So you do a character count and then you divide that total character count, including spaces, by 55 because you're supposed to have 55 spaces on a, what's the word I'm looking for, on a standard line, a Normzeile in German. And so then you get the number of standard lines in the project. And then you, the rate is per standard line. Okay. And so, so some agencies have their own rates. And when you work with them, it's just clear that's going to be the price. If a project is, if you look at it and it's extremely difficult or the time frame is very tight, I have gained the confidence to ask for more money then. And then you negotiate, which is something that I never felt comfortable doing at the beginning. I was not good at it because I felt so bad about it. I felt terrible even asking people for money, much less asking them for more money. Had a very hard time figuring out what I thought I was worth or what my time was worth, probably because I didn't really understand that those are two different things. What I charge for a project or for an hour of my time or for a line of translation is not a reflection of who I am, nor is what they're willing to pay. That took me a long time to grasp and then internalize that it's just a negotiation. It has nothing to do with feelings. It's not a reflection of their estimation of me or of my estimation of them or the project. It's that we all got to put food on the table. We all got to pay the rent and we all have different options for making that happen. There's a calculus of how hard you're going to work, how many hours you're going to work, the level of difficulty of what you're doing. And all of that gets figured into how much money you're going to ask and also how much they're willing to pay. Can I ask you some really specific questions? Sure. How many agencies do you work with? I guess there are five that I work with regularly. About how many 
work proposals do you get in a given month from these agencies? It really runs in cycles. It's very, very hard to say. Give me a range. I probably am asked to think about taking on in total 15 to 20 projects a month. And they can range in size from something that takes two hours to something that takes a month. And so it's really hard. It, it will depend on what I've already said yes to. There's also a middle range. You'll get asked if you can take on projects because of the way the world, this industry works, that the agency doesn't actually own the rights to yet. So they'll say as part of their own bidding process on the project, can you take this on? It took me a while to realize that when they asked me if I could do something, this was not them asking me to do a job. It was so that they could then put in a bid on a project to a customer who was shopping around to different agencies. Oh. It will happen every now and again that you will say no to a project and then another agency will write to you the next day with the exact same project. Oh. And it's really interesting to see how they will be offering very different terms. Are your interactions with the agencies mostly through the written word, email, back and forth? It's almost all email. Phone tends to only get involved if it's an urgent project okay. and they need to know now whether you can do it. Are these people at agencies, are they actual humans who you have worked with over the last several years and you have a sense of who they are as human beings or not so much? That is generally the case. And those relationships, they have their own depth. You get to know these people, even if you've never spoken to them on the phone, I actually had a case where I talked to one of these people for the first time on the phone after four years of <laughs> email correspondence. Yeah. And it was a real shock to hear the voice. But you get to know these people a bit. You know their personalities by the way they write emails, the way they interact, the way they deal with stressful situations. When things go sideways, how do they respond? Right. So there are real relationships there, even if you've never met the people. About what percent of the offers you get from agencies do you take? I can't give you a percent, but I would say that I tend to take as much as I can. It's definitely more than 50%. Okay. In part because they know already the kind of things that I do. So they're not going to offer me reality TV. Okay. They're just, it's, that offer is not going to come my way. They also know what I'm good at. And so if they have something that fits my profile, they'll write to me. So they're not offering me every project they have. They're offering me projects that they think fit my strengths. Cool. Now that having been said, there are some other relationships that don't work as smoothly. And uh, I could give you one example okay. without naming any names. Okay. Uh, there's one agency that I've done a lot of work for. They give me very interesting projects and there are a lot of different project managers. And that's probably the agency also that I reject the most offers from because they give me a lot of things that I just can't take on. They do a lot of last minute work and that doesn't fit into my schedule so well. But I got a couple requests from them that started off with hello, comma, no personal name. So it's not addressed to me personally. And then what looked like a boilerplate query for a project. First time I saw it, I thought, huh, they must have just forgot my name. Second time I saw it, I thought, oh, that boilerplate query looks just like the last one I got where my name wasn't on it. They're using AI to send out queries to subtitlers and translators. 
And I realized in that moment, that's not a relationship that I can win in. Um, I will never give you the fastest time and the best price. I will never be that person if you're asking 50 people, 100 people. I may be that person if you're asking three people or five people, (laughs) but I can't win at that game and it's not the game that I'm playing. I'm playing the quality game. And if the game they're playing is just fastest time, best price, that's not a game I can win. Now, the interesting thing is I told them that, said, I just want you to know if this is the model you're moving towards, I'm probably not your man anymore and you should probably just not send me these requests because it just doesn't make any sense. It also feels really weird to write a thoughtful response to something (laughs) that you are almost sure was written by a bot. Yeah. But since you can't be sure, you write a thoughtful response anyway, it's not a position I want to be in. The interesting thing was after that, they wrote a thoughtful response to me and I have not gotten another such request from them, but I have gotten personalized requests. So either there was a learning curve there or they realized, okay, he's on the list of people we can't write to like this. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe they have two different lists. I don't know. So like about what percentage of your work comes from these agencies or the bots that run them? (laughs) (laughs) I'm at a point now where I'd say I'm probably getting about half of my work from agencies That's largely because I have these large projects on the side. So the large monograph that I'm finishing up now, then I'll have another monographic project. And then I pace the workout so that I can spend about half the day doing that and the other half of the day doing work for agencies because I don't want the agencies to forget me while I'm doing a different project. And then I also have some longstanding work with museums or educational outreach or academic outreach institutions. And they have, say, a package that runs the whole year. They've given me a total character count of text that they think they're going to want me to translate that year, but they don't know when they're going to get it to me. So that can come in at any time. You know, we've decided how long I would have to get that kind of thing done. So that that's already worked out in advance, but I never really know when it's coming. So that's I do a lot of work with the uh, German Museum of Technology here in Berlin. I love that museum. Yeah, Just down great, the street from here. Great museum. I love it. It's been one of the best relationships I've had over the years. One of my one of my first big clients and a really great relationship there. So that's a lot of fun. So just to recenter on this client management issue. You know, you talked a little bit about your relationships with the agencies and it sounds like, you know, those relationships run the gamut. You also have relationships that you have to manage with real human beings that don't work for agencies. Can you talk a little bit about the dynamics of those relationships? Yeah, I get into the nitty gritty there. Okay. Uh, Some translators are very standoffish. One of the reasons they're in the industry is because they don't want to have relationships with real human beings. They want to work at their desk alone. I mean, they have relationships outside of their work life with real human beings, but they don't want to be bothered by that kind of stuff. And so they get a job, they do it, they hand it in. That's it. The customer might have questions or complaints. They deal with that. But they're not saying, what do you really mean here? Or I'm not really sure what this sentence means, that kind of thing. I go in as deep as I can. I kind of treat it like I treated scholarship. 
So if something's not clear to me and I work through it and realize this is probably not my problem, might still be, but I think there's a problem with the text, then I'll have my notes that I'll, you know, if you're working in Microsoft Word, you just use a marginal note and I ask them questions. What does this mean? Or it's a word whose meaning is ambiguous in the context. I didn't write it. I don't know what they want. And so I'll have this long list and I'll make sure that they know that they're not going to get a finished text. They're going to get a draft with questions. And in light of their answers to those questions, I will then finish the translation and edit the whole thing again. So it's a multi-step process again with the customers. Some of them don't want to be bothered. They don't like it. They like the quality that comes out of it, but they don't, they don't want to devote the time to that. They don't see that as part of the task. So I don't tend to work with people like that because I feel that the task is to do the best possible job, which very often benefits from that kind of close cooperation. In the case of this big translation I'm working on, The Morning of the World, this very long, deep counterfactual history of the Renaissance, it's an incredibly rewarding collaboration at this point. Each chapter I send to the author, I have my notes, my questions. Every now and again, I mean, it's a long book. There are a couple of mistakes every now and again. Some are obvious typos. Some are, I have to do research every now and again to translate something right. And Wikipedia says that emperor so-and-so died in a different year than is in the book, but is Wikipedia right? I don't know. So I just let the author know, hey, I stumbled across this. What's the story? What are we going to do? And he reads each chapter in depth, gives me feedback. If there are things that he thinks I haven't translated well, he lets me know, or if I've missed the point, or sometimes he wants to change it. He'll say, hey, can we change this? So we have this dialogue going on, and each chapter we'll go back and forth on two or three times. So it's a real collaboration. It's not just me getting a text and then spitting out an output. So in the cases where you have authors who can read and understand English well, you can really have a relationship where, if I'm hearing you right, what you're saying is, you're helping them to clarify not just their language, but their, their thoughts on the matter. Is that close? That's definitely right. And one of the things that can be really great about translation is it can also serve as a final stage of editing for the original. This happens a lot in the museum work. So at the Museum of Technology, the navigation exhibition redid a large part of the exhibition and they wrote brand new text for that. And of course, they're not putting out the German first and then waiting for the English to get done. They want to put it all out at the same time. And so I'm reading the final German text that they consider ready for printing, and I'm translating from them. Very often, if I don't understand what they're trying to say immediately, it doesn't mean that their text is wrong, but what it likely means is that it's written in a way that is not immediately accessible to a museum visitor even a German museum visitor. And I'll say, I don't think this makes sense, or what are you really trying to say here? And so it turns into an editing process for them. And at first, the, with them as a customer, there was some resistance because they didn't see that as part of the job, and they have other things to do. They have a lot of, they have a lot of stuff to do. Yeah. And they weren't anticipating this, but very quickly they realized what an opportunity it was 
to have that kind of feedback because finally, in a sense, I was acting as the guinea pig for their German texts. Otherwise, they only have people from inside the museum reading them. They're all too close. So that, that's a really exciting part of translation. Is it the case that most of your interactions with authors about their texts are also through the written word, going back and forth with comments on the Word document? Almost always. Um, the case is different with subtitling. If you have to speak to a film director, or if there's a problem, then you really have to talk to them. There is a round of, with any subtitling project, after you turn it in and you think, as far as I'm concerned, this could be shown on the screen, right? I've done it the best I can, it's done. Yeah. But of course, the director is going to look at it and might find mistakes, might find things that aren't mistakes, but they want something different emphasized because this is a different discussion, we could get into it, but subtitling is not translation. It's a process of condensation that has very strict parameters of time and space. And you have to fit what is said by maybe four different characters in five seconds into two characters on two lines. That's all you got. Right. And so you have to make choices. Well, maybe you made a choice that the director doesn't like. They think something else is more important. They know better than you. They say, well, I want this. Sometimes they say, we're changing the movie. This happens all the time. You'll get a film that's at a intermediate stage of production. They need subtitles for entrance to a festival or uh, for a round of donors, you know, that kind of thing. Right. But then they want to use what you've done for the final cut. And so then you'll have to adapt it. So that's another stage. And then you'll have people saying something totally different. It's the exact same movie, but they, they've dubbed in different dialogue and then you need to change it. Yeah. Uh, so that's another stage of editing. But sometimes there are problems that you just can't discuss on the page or it's way too cumbersome to do that on the page. And then you have to talk to them and that can be really wild. Talking to film directors. Yeah. Wild. Okay. Wild, <laughs> wild how? Wild good and wild bad. Okay. Wild good is you're standing in the aura of a creative genius and it's just washing over you and you're having a super high level discussion of the deeper meaning of a film with the person who made it. And that is awesome. Yeah. And you're so happy to be the midwife of that film for an English language audience and you want to convey all the deeper meaning that you can in your two lines of 41 characters per line, <laughs> 1.5 to six seconds long. Yeah. And then there are less magical moments. I've had a couple instances where I've been talking to a director and it's clear that that person thinks that I am a peon who sucks at his job because otherwise the director would not have had to get involved and doesn't understand anything, what's usually going on is the director doesn't understand how subtitles work, doesn't understand these constraints of time and space, and right. that it's not translation, it's condensation. And then I'm put in the position of having to explain this to the director, and almost all of my subtitling work goes through agencies. So again, this is not my customer. Okay. It's the agency's customer, and that's a very fraught relationship. It's not a good place to be in with someone who gets adversarial because you have no leverage. Right. 
and that that can be wild in a very bad way. Okay. So when you're dealing with film directors, for better and for worse, you tend to have face-to-face conversations or over-the-phone conversations. You're talking to each other. But the writers that you work with, you generally tend to be pursuing a relationship through the written word. You're leaving comments on their text. Is that pretty accurate? Mostly accurate? Yeah, that's, that's right. Can I just ask, like, if you have read a book by an author, a German author, for example, and you really like their book... You spend a lot of time with their book. You come to develop a real respect for them. Like you're reading it and like, you know, on every page or every other page, there's like this moment, there's a turn of phrase and you're like, oh, this person is really clever or bright or wise or otherwise interesting. And you feel like you're getting to know at least this part of who they are. And it's an important part of who they are to them. Do you ever like find yourself having like an instinct to want to meet with them over coffee, have a phone call with them just to talk about the book because nobody's read it as thoroughly as you. Yes. (laughs) I've actually acted on that impulse several times. And? Nothing. Nothing? Nothing. Oh, don't they know? Don't they know what? That you're in love with their work, that you have things to say that you all have so much to talk about. I cannot plumb the depths of their psychology. Okay. I don't. Not your job. Well, I just, I don't want to speculate as to their motives. Maybe they're too busy. Maybe the message never gets to them because the email address you find on the internet is managed by some intern whose job it is to filter out such messages. Maybe they get too much such mail and can't respond to it. Maybe they're jerks. I, you know, I, I mean, there are lots of different reasons for why it wouldn't go anywhere, but if I have a genuine appreciation for something, I've made it a kind of life practice to express that appreciation, even if I don't know the person and that can be a short email. It can be a long email. (laughs) Uh, For a while, I was in the practice of actually writing reviews. I would channel that into a review of the book I was reading or the movie I was watching. And I've often toyed with an idea but that I have never put into practice of writing a review of every film or television show that I subtitle because the subtitling process, much like the, the book translation practice that I told you about before, you know, it's a multi-stage process. You end up watching the movie, the entire movie or episode twice, right? and you read the entire text through without the movie. So you've gone through the content three times and in the process of trying to get a subtitle right, you might watch a scene five, six times. So few people not involved in making the movie have spent as much time, have invested as much thought in what the movie means, what it's really about, how it's done, as I have. Right. So I've often thought of writing about that stuff. And unfortunately, I might just not be confident enough in the appeal of such writing to others. And I know that I also don't have very much time to do it. That's probably just an excuse. Yeah, I was going to ask when exactly you planned to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Start waking up at 4.30 yeah. instead of 5. So 
aside from like the sheer amount of hours that you put in, and I don't mind sharing with our listeners that you work some serious hours. Yes. Yeah. The work's hard. I imagine it to be hard, um, but p- perhaps not for reasons that our listeners might imagine. I wonder if you ever find yourself getting kind of stuck in a translation. And if so, like, how do you get unstuck? And I, I guess kind of to add on to that, if, if I can just stack questions in front of you, like, what are the most common obstacles that you face in your effort to do like a really excellent translation? So I get stuck a lot every day. And that's usually when I realize I just need to get up and walk around. So I get stuck because it's high level intellectual work. And just like on a bench press, you can only do so many reps before you hit exhaustion. Unlike the bench press, if you just get up and walk around for five minutes <laughs> and look outside into natural light and you know, there's some practices like that that you can use to refocus your mind, then you sit back down and it's like you're fresh, like the day's starting over. So physical movement is really, really necessary. The real problem is when you get stuck because you're in over your head. And then my tactic is to set lower goals. So if I'm working on a translation that is really, really difficult, I actually am in the midst of one right now, high level philosophy. I wouldn't say I'm out of my depth, but I'm at the very edge of my comfort zone. Okay. And it's really hard and I really want to get it right. And it's not about making it sound good. I don't want it to sound bad, but it's about making sure that all the concepts in this incredibly tight, dense German are put into readable English. And I realized I was trying to do too much. So I got in touch with the author and I renegotiated the deadline And I said to myself, don't try to do three pages a day, try to do one page a day, one and a half pages a day. And if you're feeling good at the end of that one and a half, do another page, but no more. And then intersperse it with other work. And that's what I I ended up doing. Do you have people who you can call? Do you have the phone a friend? Yes, I've got (laughs) it. I don't have a large network. Okay but I have a very powerful network and I have the luck and privilege of living downstairs from two really great translators. Oh, that's right. Yeah. You have these neighbors in your building. Yes. So their daughter is very close friends with my younger daughter and we have become very, very close friends and they've been great supporters of me when I was transitioning into this line of work. Actually, I'm going to say their names if I can shout out to them because they're such great people and such great translators. Uh, Heather Kimber and Nathan Fritz. Okay. I'll link to their work in the show notes too. Yeah. I like them. I met them once. Yes. Yes. Christmas. Christmas? Thanksgiving. It was our our postponed Thanksgiving dinner on Christmas Day. 
Right, right. <laughs> thanks Co- to COVID. Thanks, COVID. <laughs> so uh, they they are my go-to people. And in fact, I have a almost, almost a running office hours with Heather where we will get together on a very regular basis and discuss the projects that we're working on. She'll ask me questions. I'll ask her. And there you can also get into things, not just things that you can't figure out, but really high level when you're working with things that you can't figure out a way to, to square the circle because the languages just work way too different. And then you sit down with a great person like Heather and Nathan and say, what would you do here? And then pop open a beer, maybe uh, or a bottle of wine. And it becomes the great discussion in its own right. That's awesome, man. I'm happy to hear that you have that in your building, no less. In listening to you talk about this translation you're doing of this dense philosophy text, I get the sense that you really want to not just take it slow, but make it perfect. And I wonder if there's such thing as a, a perfect translation and like how you kind of grapple with or otherwise navigate your struggle for perfection. My greatest sin as a translator is the arrogance of thinking that there is such a thing as a perfect translation, which I firmly believe there isn't in my more sober moments and the conviction that I could deliver such a thing. When we talked about time before, if I'm spending way too much time on a project, it's because of perfectionism, usually. It goes beyond wanting to get it right and enjoying it, and it becomes a kind of mania for doing it right with a capital R. And there's really no such thing. Every translation is an act of interpretation. And I'm talking about a translation with no obvious mistakes. It's still an act of translation. It will never be what the author created. In fact, translators of books are often, and I believe rightly as a translator of such books, <laughs> offended that their names are not even put on the front covers of books. Uh, this is an abhorrent practice in publishing. <laughs> the idea that the content of that book is only due to the author misunderstands everything about translation. It is a collaborative effort, even if the author and the translator never communicate. If I translated Plato, it would be a collaborative effort because my mind is trying to get in touch with Plato's mind and figure out what Plato really wanted to say. And I'm putting that into my language for my context, my time period, my country, right? So it's also why you can have many translations of the same text over generations, in different places in the world, even in the same country, in the same decade. And the translations will be very different because those people are identifying different things that they think are really important, not because one is better, in quotation marks, than the other. You might have your own opinion on that, but they can both be excellent and be totally different. Oh. Two questions about that. First, does it irk you that your name isn't on the cover of a translation that you worked assiduously on. Sure. Yeah. Sure. I, in fact, I tried to negotiate getting my name on the cover of the last big translation I did, the like monograph. And this was many years ago. They would not budge. They said, we don't do it. Yeah. Like we don't do it isn't a reason. Right. I, that's just 
telling me what I already know. I know you don't do it, but I want you to do it. Uh Well, we can't, we have a template design for our title pages and there's no room on it for a translator. Ooh, change the template. Or make a new template for (laughs) translated books because translated books are different from original books. I should say, in case our listeners are feeling it, I don't think this is just like a matter of ego and you want to see your name on a book. I think as you're describing what you do, it just makes sense to have your name on the cover. You're a very generous person, Daniel. It is also ego. I am a big enough boy to admit that. But yeah, it's uh, a representation of what's inside. If the title and the name of the author are there to let the potential buyer know it's a representation of what is inside, it's almost fraud to not name the translator. Fraud indeed. I'm with you. Here's my second question about that. Do you, in an effort to make the perfect translation ever read other people's translations of a work if such translations exist as reference or inspiration or a vehicle for clarification? I have done that a bit differently than you're thinking. A few times I've been asked to subtitle something for which there is already an English translation. So say I'm subtitling the movie based on a novel in German. And that German novel has already been translated into English. Now, obviously the movie is not the same as the novel, but the language of the English translation might come in handy. Uh, Other places I use it, I subtitled a very interesting movie called Bloodsuckers. I believe that's the title they gave it in English, Blutzeuge, which could also be leeches. So I'm not sure what they ended up going with. And it was a fanciful staging of Marxian critique of capitalist society in this crazy world of film and high society culture in large sections. Sometimes the viewer knew and sometimes not were just quotations from Marx from capital. And so then I thought, well, I need to use a real translation. Like I can't just translate Marx on my own. I could, But if in German you have to be able, if you're in the know, to make the connection to Marx, then there's a canonical English translation of Marx available. Under your pillow. Even if I, of course, even (laughs) if I don't think it's good, or if I think even it's made mistakes in this passage, I'm going to quote it because the point there is not necessarily to translate. It's to make an identifiable cultural reference. Right. Right. Utterly fascinating. You know, in thinking about that, I'm actually thinking about some other podcast guests. Uh, Josh Weiner is a poet, and he also does some translations. He most recently translated a book of poems by Nellie Sachs, the great German poet. He, on the podcast, talked about his translation of the Flemish poet, Paul Van Ostein's work. And I also had Ben Kim, the piano player on, uh, and he plays Mozart's music. In a way, translating the work of Mozart, his interpretation, playing Mozart for a contemporary audience. I mean, steeped in the tradition, steeped in the history, 
reverent of or at least respectful towards all of that history mm-hmm. and tradition. He plays Mozart. He translates Mozart for the contemporary audience. And what they both spoke about poetically as these things go is translating, loosely speaking, not just the notes or the words, but the the tone and the vibe and the feeling. And I hope I might get you to talk a little bit about kind of the problematics of translating feeling and tone and vibe. It's a really difficult question. I have a lot of feelings about it, <laughs> but uh, it's, it's really difficult to try to think of a way to describe it. It's, it's really in the gut. You're hearing the voice. In this sense, it's very much like speaking a foreign language. You're almost channeling the voice. And there's, I can't reduce it myself to a technique. It's just a feeling, and I know that it's a feeling I have. It's a natural ability. I don't think it's one that I developed, and it's what ultimately was the key for me to learning foreign languages. I just started channeling voices. I wasn't trying to put grammar together or think of translation as some sort of math problem or a Lego problem or Tetris. I would just get in. It's almost like acting. You're getting into a character. And of course, you have a different personality when you speak a different language. That's inevitable. And so in translation, I think something like that is happening too. And certainly with this large uh, monograph that I'm almost done with now, I feel like I've captured the original voice in my translation. I know how to speak Bantrook in English, right? I can channel his voice. And thankfully, he is happy, or at least he tells me that he is happy (laughs) with the way his voice has been channeled. I guess the one technique I could say is that you have to have a very keen eye and ear for register. So you really have to know codes. What, what code is this person speaking in now? So if you have this really highfalutin language, and there I just did it. I talked about something elevated, the register of a language, but I used a low register word, highfalutin. I'm making a claim to expertise and at the same time, I'm trying to communicate that I'm not a snob. Right. Right. And so if you see that in a translation, you have to do the same thing. And because it's going to have an effect on the reader in the original, and you want that effect to come through in the translation. But of course, languages work differently. So you can't necessarily do it one-to-one. You can't find the German equivalent of highfalutin and just put that in there. You have to think, how would a German person perform that magic trick of language? So... I guess that's the closest I could come. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I find that desperately interesting and I really love the way you express it. And I imagine that there have been projects where that has happened over and over again, that you have somehow opened yourself up enough to really fully understand where the author was coming from and you get into their not just their head but their their heart and their soul and you get it 
and you're able to do the magic trick. Like, and you're able to do that magic trick over and over again. I wonder if you could maybe tell the story of a translation where that happened, like one that you're really proud of, that you really feel like you managed to capture the tone and the vibe and the content and perform that magic trick over and over such that like, this is the translation that really maybe speaks to your best work or your best connection to a work for that matter. Well, Daniel, that's a very hard question to answer. I'm tempted to say that on a good day, that's how it feels. But that's probably a little too much pride involved <laughs> in the answer <laughs> and wishful thinking. Yeah. If I try to boil it down to a project, like say one where I'm, I think I've cracked a nut that most people just wouldn't even be willing to put forth the resources necessary to crack it, yeah. regardless of their ability. It's just, why would you do that to yourself? <laughs> but I think I really cracked it and I did a great job and I'm really proud of what I did. It's an academic translation of a, an Italian scholar that most people have probably never heard of. His name is Salvatore Camporeale and he was a Dominican friar in Florence who wrote on Renaissance philosophy and especially on this one of the bad boys of Renaissance humanism whose name is Lorenzo Valla. One of the few names from the Renaissance that people who don't actually study the Renaissance might have even heard. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, Campo Reale wrote a lot about Valla and his philosophy and philosophy of language. And he did it in such a complicated way. I can't even think of the right word to describe how complicated it is. To understand it in Italian, you need to know... Greek, because he's using words in Italian with the meaning of the Greek word that the Italian word grew out of. Okay. And until you realize that, you don't actually know what he's talking about. And then the grammar is just incredibly complicated and it's full of illusions, cultural illusions, literary illusions, philosophical illusions. And I spent years working on this project. This is not actually to my credit <laughs> because I, this was actually the first project that I convinced anyone to pay me for that no one came to me. I found this and I thought, oh, this is really important scholarship. No one's translated it. Why not? Well, I found out why not because yeah, yeah. it's just way too hard. It's not worth the, the time. And I got this project organized and got funding for it. Uh, it's an academic project. I got academic funding for it basically. And found an editor who would write an introduction for it and kind of shepherd the project through because I didn't know anything about working with publishers at that point. Yeah, I think I worked on that from 2007 until 2012, off and, off and on. Okay. Three different processes of revision. And the last one... I did when I had a fellowship at the American Academy in Rome and the director of the Academy just turned out to be the man I had approached many years before to see if he would be the shepherd for the project. And we sat in his office once a week and went through the translation page by page. He checked it and he had been a student of Campo Reale. 
And so this was also a really important a passion project for him. You know, he signed off on it and showed me all the things that I wasn't understanding. And I mean, that was that was that kind of project where I felt like in the end I was channeling this voice. The magic trick was happening. There was some real alchemy there. And I say alchemy too because I feel like I was able to put it into English that was challenging. It didn't simplify it, but it was a million times more readable than the original. To the extent that I imagine, maybe I'm just fooling myself, but I imagine that in the future, even though the standard in academia is to always cite the original and not a translation, even if you're actually using the translation, uh, you pretend that you've read the original. <laughs> I flatter myself to think that in the future when people cite his work, they will cite this translation as at least a way to understand his thought because the original is just so difficult. That's brilliant, man. Let me ask you, in the rare and beautiful projects like these, these passion projects of yours, where you are invested, truly invested in the project for a whole host of reasons that would make you feel invested in the project. How does it feel when the project is done and you sent off your last set of notes, the final translation, and it kind of goes out into the world, the ship has sailed. How does it feel to complete a project? I think my answer is going to let you down. I... It doesn't really feel like anything. Say it's a film that I really loved and I felt privileged to work on it. I send the file. I write an invoice. I send the invoice. Start the next project. Uh, there's not too much basking in the glow. What I do like doing, though, is beholding the final project. There are few professional moments of joy that compare to going to a movie theater and seeing a movie that you subtitled, a really good movie, and seeing that they didn't mess it up in final production <laughs> because, of course, you send them a file based on the movie they gave you, but if they change that movie in any way and don't bother to alter the subtitles... Who knows what could happen? But is that a relief when they don't mess it up or is it a celebration? Kind of a relief. You kind of assume they'll mess it up in some way. <laughs> because subtitles, sadly, and this is a deep, dirty, dark secret of the industry, no one cares about subtitles. Yeah. Audiences care. But audiences, this is one of the ironies of subtitling or paradoxes, or not just subtitling, of translation in general, the people who need the product cannot judge the quality of the product. If you buy a car, you might not know how an engine works, but you know if it doesn't run because you're stranded by the side of the road. If you're reading a translation of a book whose language you don't read, or you're watching a movie with subtitles and you don't speak that language, you have no idea, as long as it's done aesthetically well, you have no idea whether what you're seeing is good or not. Or, is, or if that interpretation is anything close to what you would think is valid. And so the audience can't judge. So there's no quality control from the end user. And the producers and film companies and things treat it as an utter afterthought. 
Here's one example for how you know that it's an afterthought. Okay. Major projects, major films that are being made in Germany. As for all of these projects, they start doing publicity long before the film is even done because they have to you know, get people interested in the movie. So you'll even start seeing trailers before they've stopped shooting or even finished editing. They also give it their own provisional title in English as if that didn't really matter. They come up with their <laughs> own title, yeah. which is usually a straight translation of the German, which is usually not something that works because we're talking, this is a literary translation now. And they shop the film around under that title. And then they say, well, this is the title we've always been using. It's the title the film has to have for reasons of continuity. Right. So there's no way they approach the German title in that way. They probably gave a lot of thought to what would be the best thing to call this movie? What represents this movie? What would get audiences interested? And with the English title, they don't do that. And the real problem there is English isn't just a language. It's the language. It is the international language. So when you're translating into English, especially doing a film subtitle in English, you're giving it the name that the whole world is going to call it. It's not just people who speak English will have this name and people who speak French will have this name. No, that's, not, that's just not how it works. English is the language. It's the Latin of today. So I can't exactly imagine what it's like to sit in a movie theater and watch my translation roll across the screen as I'm viewing it. And I also am having a hard time imagining how frustrating it might be when they mess it up. That could be, for me, because I'm a very frail, fragile, fickle person, a real ego blow. One thing that I'm getting from this conversation is like how deeply committed you are to doing a great job. You take a lot of pride in this. And I think it's kind of beautiful because I think that what you do is important. And the fact that you take a lot of pride in it just means a lot to me. I wonder if there are other translators whose work you really admire, like like who's the Michael Jordan of translating? Like, is there like the Patrick Baker, Mount Rushmore of translators? Do you have a North star? I keep on asking the question a few different ways. <laughs> I'm basking in the glow of your linguistic virtuosity. Uh -huh. Yeah. Is there a Mount Rushmore? I don't know that I could give you four names. I will tell you who the North star is. Okay. There is a name that whenever I, think, ah, it doesn't matter. Think, what would William Weaver say about that? It William just Weaver. doesn't matter. Do you know William Weaver? I don't know William Weaver at all. Well, most people probably don't know the name, um, not because he hasn't done great and important work, but just because translators aren't generally household names. William Weaver is the man who translated everything by Umberto Eco. So if you read The Name of the Rose, you read William Weaver. You didn't read Umberto Eco, you read Weaver and Eco. Echo and Weaver. Clearly, the author is the first name, but his translations are so compelling, so beautiful, so correct. It, it's just astounding to see how he could maintain the complexity of Echo's language. Echo's, he's so hard, so hard. He maintains the complexity and the gripping narrative and the right word choice. It the whole voice, it's all there. So whenever I think that I might cut a corner, 
there's like this picture of William Weaver wagging his finger at me saying, <laughs> we don't cut corners here. Yeah. So he's, he's the, for me as in terms of, you know, I actually don't know if he's still alive or not, but say contemporary translators in the past, I have incredible respect for Hollingdale's translations of Nietzsche. Some of the greatest work of translation I've ever seen. My all-time favorite, this is a deep cut. I'm in. But my all-time favorite is uh, the English philosopher Thomas Hobbes' translation of Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War. Wait, Hobbes translated? Hobbes translated, yes. Hobbes was a great translator. Hobbes was a mighty philosopher. And this translation is just amazing because he, he accomplished something that has rarely ever been accomplished, which is he took one of the most difficult texts in Greek. And he made it poor, nasty, solitary, brutish, and short. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. I can take that. Um, he not only translated it with incredible accuracy, but he maintained all of the difficult grammar without making it unreadable. And when you read that translation, if, if one would choose, there's an excellent edition uh, by University of Chicago Press, and I believe it's still in print, you can see why English from the 17th century was written the way it was, because all of those writers learned Latin and Greek, uh -huh. and they all learned how to translate Latin and Greek. And so the English that you're reading, in philosophy especially, is the way those people learn to write by translating Latin and Greek. This was almost like a translationese English. You could fault it for that. I, you know, I don't know enough about the linguistics or the historical linguistics to say how different it would be from someone who hadn't studied those languages. But you, you can at least see the influence. And Hobbes did one of the greatest jobs of a translator ever. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. It makes me want to ask, is there like a project that you really crave? Is there Patrick Baker's Humberto Echo or Thucydides? If you could translate the work of any one author, you get commissioned to do it. There is a book that I am determined to translate before I die, but it's for personal reasons and not because I think it's the greatest book ever or it's a project that requires the greatest virtuosity that I could bring to the task. It is a good book. It's the last novel written by the German author, Walter Kempowski. And the German title is Alles umsonst, which would mean something like directly translated all for nothing, which is a terrible title. So that's not what the title would be clearly. And it's about the experience of Germans towards the end of the Second World War living in what they called Greater Germany, so in Silesia, and the Russians are coming, and they are fleeing the Russian army. And it's just an incredibly powerful story about, ultimately about grace in human life. And the reason I want to translate it is not only that it's such a powerful story, but Kempowski died on the same day in the same hospital that my first daughter was born on. And that book, K 
came out either right before he died or right after. And I read it on the park bench while taking walks with my daughter and she would finally fall asleep. And then I would sit down on a bench next to a pond and I would read that book. And just for the sense of closing a circle, I want to translate it. So let's talk about billing clients. Shit, I should just leave that in. I really want to talk to you about the you financial should. side of it. Leave it in, man. That's All great. Right. From the that sublime was, to the ridiculous. Yeah, so not graceful. <laughs> I'm the worst at this. Sometimes it's the only transition possible. I mean, there was there's something in there about grace, but I just made a joke out of it. But I do want to talk about it, and I, I think it's important for our listeners to get a sense of your approach to billing clients, which might just be code for your approach to valuing your, your time. Maybe I should just ask you this. In your years of doing this, what have you learned about the economics of translation? What I've learned is that it is an inverted world the values are upside down. To do a really good translation, you need to have a great command of the target language, the language you're translating into. You need to have a great command of the source language, the language you're translating from. You need to have life experience so that you know what people are really talking about. You need to have an ear, you need to have time, you need to have moments of peace. Translation really straddles that world between art and work. And a painter who never gets to rest is going to produce at least less good paintings, probably bad paintings, than if that painter had adequate rest, dare I say even boredom, because that's where creativity comes from. Yeah. So you need all of those things to be a really good translator. The pay in the industry does not reflect any of that. What I really learned was that that's because most clients don't want a really great translation. Most clients want a workable translation. And then you don't need all of those things to do that. You don't, you don't need to have that level of skill that level of experience, that kind of dedication to quality. That having been said, you still need to be a lot better than those customers think. But what I realized is that I need to find customers who are willing to pay for quality. And for a long time, I thought that the industry just didn't pay well. It's not true. I just didn't have an understanding of how it worked. I just thought, well, there's good translations and bad translations. And that's not true. Translations serve purposes in context. And if the context is, you know, we just need a workable translation to get to the next point, and then we're going to throw this away, really doesn't matter how good it is. If you're translating a 1,200-page book for Princeton University Press, you want it to last forever. That's the ideal that you're working towards. So then you want everything to be right. 
and pricing needs to be appropriate for that. And thankfully, I'm at a point now where I don't have to try to convince people to pay what they don't want to pay. I just need to find enough of the people willing to pay for the quality that I enjoy producing. I don't get joy out of producing things that I don't think would stand the test of more than five minutes. But you do get joy out of having the time to do an excellent translation. It's hard. I get joy out of it. It's very hard to make sure that I have enough time. I'm still not sure whether what I'm fighting against is the industry I'm in. Is it the times we're living through? My sense is that if you were a reasonably well-educated person who worked really hard at pretty much any task 40 years ago, you didn't really worry about money because of the state of the economy, because of the state of wages in general, a whole number of factors. Nowadays, I just don't think that's the case. And I think that it's not a secret. You have to work harder and harder, longer and longer for less money than someone did 50 years ago, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 years ago. Truth. And in the industry, in the translation and subtitling industry, it, it really straddles the white collar and the blue collar worlds. I see myself as an intellectual blue collar worker. And I, I said that to some people and they tend to either laugh or don't take me seriously, or they think I'm trying to give myself some sort of street cred as a, as a worker that I don't deserve because I'm really an egghead, right? I have a PhD. So how could I consider myself a worker? And the reason I do, in spite of the truth of all of those complaints, is that I produce widgets and I am paid per widget or per unit time. I am not paid for an idealized understanding of value added. In general, that's what intellectuals are paid for. You couldn't take any five minutes of their time and say, this person did these things and these things are worth this much money. You know, that's just not how those salaries are worked out. So I'm in that pay world of blue collar workers. I'm also working the hours. I'm putting in at least eight hours a day, six days a week. So I'm working really kind of 19th century blue collar work hours. But to do the work I do, I need an incredibly high level of education. So, you know, you're somewhere in between. You know, and, and, and as you alluded to earlier, you know, the landscape for translation is changing rapidly. And I imagine thus the value placed on it is changing. And while it's great that you seem to have found your niche in the translating world, you know, the pavement slabs are burning loose beneath your feet. Things are changing rather rapidly. And I wonder how you see your future in translation work. The short answer, Daniel, is that I don't think there is a future in translation work. I think the vast majority of people working in the industry will not have jobs in 20 years or they will be paid so little for those jobs that they couldn't live on them. And most of them will turn into editors for texts written by artificial intelligence. 
that's the direction we're going in now in the same way that the factories of our youth are now worked by robots who are managed or edited, you could say, by a few human beings. But the work is done by machines, work that used to be done by human beings. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It makes perfect sense. There's no higher level or style to ordering food or describing what a company does or, you know, doing basic communication. Things get more difficult at the level of, say, marketing, because then you're making direct psychological appeals to specific target groups. Um, it's hard to believe that AI could do that very well. You can have AI do a bad job or a serviceable job, and then a human being can edit. I think that's what we're looking at for most texts. And what about for what you do? I think that what I do is going to become a boutique industry. There will be much less available, many fewer people working in it, and those who do work in it, depending on their ability to negotiate, will manage just fine financially. But there won't be many spots available on that train. Well, luckily for you, now that you've been on the For a Living podcast, there will always be a luxury seat for you on the translation train. <laughs> this might be an opportune time, Daniel, for me to mention that I'm transitioning, or because of this, uh, I really am putting a lot of effort into transitioning away from just straight translation and subtitling to more what I would call language consulting. And this has to do really with project development. So say a, a business, an international business is putting together a new product or a new campaign for an international market. Say they're from Finland. They speak English really well in Finland. Their whole team speaks English and they're developing this in English, but they're still thinking Finnish. And they'll put together this project and they'll have it done in Finnish and in a kind of, you know, Englishy English. And then they'll give the finish to a translator. And that translator won't have any idea what they're talking about, won't have been involved in any of the process, and might not even care enough about the project to ask when they're unsure what things mean. And they're not going to be involved enough anyway to do a really great job. So you can imagine this company putting tons of effort into every part of this machine, except the final step, which is putting it in a language that's going to reach the people they're trying to reach. And what I would like to do is work with people like that from the be very beginning to help them develop the whole concept in English, but in real English and a whole lexicon for what they're trying to say so that when it comes out, it's organic. That's the kind of work that I would like to do. And I, I have had the privilege of working with a few people so far doing just that. And it's incredibly rewarding. It's a lot of fun. And it involves a lot of the same kind of editing that we were talking about before, because, you know, when you speak your own language, you're cutting a lot of corners. That's what language helps you do. You're not, you're not seeing everything. You're not thinking about everything. It's just the grammar you use, the word choice available to you, the concepts that you think in, they're doing so much heavy lifting and you don't see it until you try to put that into another language and make it sound natural. And then you realize, oh, that only makes sense because English works that way. Hmm. Well, how does German work? How does Italian work? How does Finnish work? And then you realize that it's not just a question of translating 
words. You're translating ideas and concepts and intentions. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that can best be done when you have, you know, someone working with you from the very beginning. So that's what I'd like to be doing in the future, in part because AI is going to take away a lot of work. It's going to become harder to get jobs, you know, things like that, but also because it's incredibly rich and rewarding. And I think that that's probably where my talents can be put to an even better use. Well, you, my friend, have been a rich and rewarding guest. But as you well know, I can't let you leave this place without asking you for a couple of things. First, I'm going to have to ask you to share with me a professional triumph and a professional failure. And maybe we could start with the failure so we could end on a note of triumph. Ah, failure, where to begin? <laughs> Hello, failure, my old friend. Wasn't that a song once? <laughs> I think that was it. Um, I actually alighted on one this morning when looking through, I spent some time looking through all the projects I'd done for the last five years and one project title stood out and I thought, Oh God. <laughs> and I just got that pit in my stomach Okay. and I could hear the director's voice. And so I, as I mentioned earlier, there's problems sometimes working with directors and things can get wild in a bad way. And this was a director, I am not going to name any names. Oh, come on. No way. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Go ahead. This was a director who had no understanding of how subtitling worked, what its possibilities, limitations were, what its virtues and vices were. Uh, this director assumed that everything in his incredibly witty and deep and aesthetically beautiful movie was going to appear in two lines of 41 characters, 1.5 to 6 seconds long throughout this movie. And that is just not a realistic expectation. It was impossible to disabuse him of that notion. He was personally insulting. He had clearly no respect for what I did. And he was he made his lack of respect, his contempt quite clear and made a lot of personal attacks and things like that. I got so frustrated that I finally just said, I'm done with this project. But I didn't want to disappoint the agency that I was working for. So this was the first time I realized the director gets what he wants. All I can do is help to save the person from himself. But if he won't take the life raft, then he's just going to have to go down. And so I basically made almost all the changes that he wanted, which made the subtitles terrible. But he wouldn't accept otherwise. There was no choice there. But I was so disgusted by this project that in the end, I put, there's always a credit line at the end of a feature film that actually lists the subtitler's name. I put his name in at the end of the subtitles <laughs> <laughs> and did not tell the agency about it. I was so angry and I thought, well, these are his subtitles, they're not mine. I didn't really think far ahead enough to realize that this could be problematic, that he might not like that. <laughs> that <laughs> the there thought were... never crossed your mind? Nope. nope. You gave him an anvil in the ocean, you thought he might like it? I Well, I was so uh, wrapped up in my own pain. Yeah and disappointment because it was a really great movie. It was a really beautiful movie, really important. And I was so sad. I felt such great loss. And for me, it was symbolic to take my name off the credit, but who else's name to put on? So I put on his name. The agency caught it before the subtitles were uh, burnt in. That's the industry 
term for when subtitles get set into the actual film itself and can't be taken out anymore. Then the movie actually has the titles in it. And before they did that, they just did a final spot check and they realized that my name was not in the credit title, but it was, and they got in touch with me and they were so angry because they, of course, understood the repercussions there that I had not thought through. And I had egg all over my face and it was such a terrible experience. And yeah, that was one of the worst failures and disappointments I ever had. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it did, there's no silver lining. No, no. I learned a lot. (laughs) There's the the silver silver lining, lining, I guess. I learned a lot. Uh, I guess most importantly, that's where I started to separate myself from the work and to realize different people have different expectations and it's not my project. It's not my movie. And all I can end up doing if someone wants something that I think is absolutely horrible and will ruin it, but it's their project, is to give them the best advice I can. But I can't. It's not mine. I guess that's the biggest thing I learned there. It's not mine. You learned the lesson. You tried to get away with it. I don't fault you for it. That said, you've had a great many successes. Share with me a professional triumph. Ah, oh, the triumphs, where to begin? <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to go for a meta triumph here. Meta triumph. I believe this is the uh, first for living or studs meta triumph. All right. Well, you know, I like to go meta and not in the Zuckerberg sense. So when I first got into translating, I'd always done it as a side gig to make extra money while I was an academic. But I decided to become a full-time translator when I decided it was time to leave academia, which I did for two basic reasons. One was that I just didn't think I had a good enough chance of making it, and it didn't make sense to me to invest more time and energy into trying to get tenure and thinking I wasn't going to make it. But the other was that I realized I just didn't really enjoy it. I was good at it, but I didn't enjoy it, and I couldn't imagine spending the rest of my life doing something I didn't really enjoy and that had such bad prospects. (laughs) (laughs) One or the other. (laughs) So I took this great leap into being a translator, which also meant becoming a freelancer, which is, you know, the entry level businessman. I didn't know anything about business and I had always run the other way from anything having to do with business. I never wanted to negotiate anything. I never wanted to write an invoice. I mean, I was paid by direct deposit with full withholdings from the age of 15 to 2017, except for these side jobs I did, but ah, whatever, those were side jobs. Now this was the real deal. I had to do accounting, budgeting, write invoices, remind clients who hadn't paid me that they hadn't paid me, find the right language for that. And I had none of those skills and none of it came naturally. And it was a real slog and I was overcome with fear that I wouldn't be able to make enough money, that I wouldn't have enough customers, and that I wouldn't be able to feed my family. I was just terrified, and it tore me up inside, uh, sleepless nights. That was my mental state, 2017. And now I have a flourishing business, I have a certain amount of respect, and I don't worry about those things anymore. I've developed the language that I need for customer communication. I enjoy it, usually. I don't have a problem with negotiating prices anymore. I actually enjoy it. I think it's kind of fun. I play around with it. So that's my triumph, that I've actually 
made that work. Something that when I started just seemed absolutely impossible. Your triumph is indeed that you triumphed, my friend. Meta triumph. Meta triumph. I love it. Look, man, I know that you work a lot and I know that not only because of the sheer number of hours that you put in, like you struggle with your work. The way that people who strive for excellence struggle in their striving for excellence. And, and you've triumphed. You've learned in short order all the things you need to know to make a living at this gig. And I'm, I'm happy that we're able to be in conversation. I got to learn more about you. That should be enough. But I got one more ask. Is there anything that kind of like influences or otherwise illustrates your work that you would like to recommend to our listeners. It could be anything. It's an open slate. The floor is yours, Dr. Baker. Don't call me Dr. Baker. <laughs> I I'm can't deliver children. <laughs> I cannot save you if you have a heart attack on an airplane. It's hard to say that there's anything that really influences my work that I could recommend to other people, but... One thing that plays a big role in my work is music. Translation is a solitary activity, and sometimes you just need a little pick-me-up. And so I tend to listen to music while I'm working. And depending on the translation, you can have things with words, but normally not. You need to have orchestral music is the best. And then things that don't have too many ups and downs because you can't get distracted. But sometimes you just need that extra kick it's been a hard day. You can't really move forward. So in those moments, I like to put on J.S. Bach's Art of the Fugue, which is just one of the most beautiful pieces of music I've ever heard. And it's, it's not a deep cut, <laughs> but it is just really powerful music. And it replenishes what has gone missing from my soul. All right. Well, we will link to box Art of the Fugue in the show notes. At this point, I might inform our listeners that I've been trying to sucker Patrick onto the podcast basically since I started it. And for various reasons, all of which are perfectly valid and reasonable, he's declined until today. And today was a damn good day for me. Patrick Baker, thanks for being on For a Living. Thanks for having me, Daniel. It's been a great pleasure. All right, friends. That's my pal, Patrick. Ain't he the best? I told you, he's the best. Totally worth the wait. Love him. Legit love him. All right. So follow this show wherever you get podcasts. Maybe leave a review. And if you dig what you hear, please tell a friend or two. And if for a living means something to you, and you have the means to give a few, please support me over at patreon.com slash for a living. Now I'll be back in two weeks with a special guest. Mike Lewin is a world-class engineer who's devoted his working life to time attack auto racing. You won't want to miss this episode. Promise. Till then, please take care. Remember to breathe. Try to spring forward with some glee and I'll catch you in two weeks time.